We ask ourselves this question and we ask each other, how is it that we make it through hard times? When the pressure comes in our lives, what is it that pulls us through? How is it that we are able to be overcomers? What does it look like in our lives with the things that we face right now, perhaps some of us going through it at this moment, or perhaps some praying over those times in the future, perhaps before Jesus returns or when something else happens to your family, how is it that you will have the strength to make it through? This series that we're in is called Overcomer. We're going to spend the next weeks camped out right here in 1 Peter. Peter who's talking to believers who are going through hard things. Peter who's writing this letter saying, look at Jesus. Jesus is your overcomer. He says, I know you feel alone right now, but Jesus is with you. I know it's scary right now, but Jesus is coming. I know it's dark, but darkness, the deepest darkness, always precedes the dawn of righteousness. I know you're disconnected and you feel far from home. Remember your inheritance and your place in the family of God. Don't give up, my friends, he says. To the believers then and to believers now, he says, don't give up. You see, no matter how dark it feels, God, his light is dawning. God is at work in your life. God is at work in your family. God is at work in your story. Even when you can't see it, God is at work. So we turn to the book of 1 Peter today. Now, if you have your Bible with you, I invite you to turn there with me. Just a little tip. If you reach Hebrews, you have a little bit more to the right. If you reach all the way to the last book, Revelation, you have a little bit more to your left. It's a small letter, 1 Peter. We looked at our first section last week. And our section in scripture today is 1 Peter 13, verse 13 to 25. Therefore, and we just pause, Lord Jesus, to ask your Holy Spirit to guide the reading of your word. In your name we pray, amen. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. And then he quotes from Leviticus, for it is written, be holy as I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it's not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you by your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart, 
For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. And then he quotes Isaiah. For all people are like grass and all their glory is like flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that has been preached to you. This scripture, this letter that Peter writes to these believers, this section of it I have entitled, Overcome with Love. As we look at what we saw in scripture last week and what we're looking at this week, we find a connecting word, a powerful connecting word that starts off verse 13. This word is therefore. This is a great connector. This is basically Peter saying all the arguments he laid out before, the things that he presented to us in the first 12 verses, one argument after another. You have received the great benefits of salvation, a new birth, a living hope, and the assurance of an inheritance. He says, therefore, because of all this, and here comes the application. Here comes what it means. Because of this, here is what you're called to do. In light of all that we've just talked about, and what has Peter been talking about? How amazing salvation is. How amazing the saving power of Jesus Christ is. Remember, he's been singing doxology. Remember, he's been saying, praise God for the work, the amazing work of salvation that God has been doing in Jesus Christ. That in the goodness of God, he has gifted us with living hope. And he's saying, in light of all of that, here's what you can do. Here's what you will do. Remember, he's talking to Christians that are hurting. Remember, he's talking to people that are going through it. Instead of just giving them a speech and saying, just keep on going, he gives them a bigger perspective. When we're going through tough stuff, we're zoomed in, like zoomed in on a picture. We're seeing up close. All we can see is our suffering. All we can see is what we're going through. And so what Peter does for them in this letter is like you do on your phone and you zoom out or on your computer, he zooms out and gives them the bigger picture the bigness of their God, the largeness of who this God is, and their calling as believers. So he steps them back thousands of years through history, and he tells them, this salvation you're experiencing, this living hope that you are experiencing is something that they longed for but never got to see. Oh, even the angels wanted to look into this salvation that God had planned since the foundation of the world that you now get to see and experience. Remember, remember how big your God is. Remember what you are called to. And so he zooms out their perspective and he tells them the bigger story of what they are experiencing. And then he gets to this therefore. Therefore, four things, four exhortations, four things to do, four ways to grow in Jesus in account of this huge salvation plan that you are a part of. Four things, Peter says. In light of all this, you live differently. Exhortation number one is in verse 13. He says, be mentally strong. 
The scriptural imagery here is literally gird up the loins of your mind. Now, we might need a little bit of help understanding this, but men then and now who are from the Middle East wear long flowing robes, robes, lots of fabric, lots of drapery. So when you needed to run or work or move fast, you would grab all that drapery, put it in your belt so that you were prepared to move fast. You could get places or do the work that you needed to do because you were girded, right? So he says you do that in your mind. You have this, this focused attention with your mind so that you are ready and agile and ready to move. You are ready to take action. The second imagery Peter uses is to be fully sober. Certainly if you're drunk, you're not going to be able to do this well to focus mentally, to be alert, to have clarity. But the word here isn't just about alcohol. It's about the fuzziness of our minds, the ways that we can numb out and let thoughts take over us, the ways that we can allow discouragement to wash over us. It's talking about mental clarity here, to be focused, to be self-controlled, to have an internal fortitude to stay clear mentally, even when and especially when things are hard. To be unhindered by your thoughts. You see, there's a battle going on in the world and that battle begins right here in our minds, friends. So he's calling us to stay alert. Don't drop your guard when it comes to the mental clarity and focus that you need to have to engage in this battle. So he says, take it seriously. So for some of us here, that might mean memorizing scripture so that you have the word of God running through your mind. You might be called to do that. For some of us here, it might mean seeking counseling so that you can work through the pain and the trauma, the thoughts that are overwhelming you at times. Because in order for you to be mentally clear, to be sober and alert, you need to have some help facing those things that you've gone through. For some of you, it might mean sharing in community with others what you really are experiencing and going through right now. To have the courage to show up and say, this is really what's going on in my life. Because then you don't carry it alone, you carry it with others. We think to be mentally alert, to be sober and vigilant, to be ready to act means I have to carry it on my own. But actually, in the scriptures, it's, Bear one another's burdens, walk with each other, so you might need to show up honestly in community. For some of us here, that might mean that in facing depression and anxiety that you ask yourself, have I gotten all the help that I need? Because when I broke my arm, you wouldn't chastise me for going to the doctor and getting a cast put on. If I would keep going about trying to use it after, yes, as a child, I dove into a concrete block instead of into the waters of the swimming pool. And I went to the doctor. You wouldn't expect me to keep going about my business like I didn't have a broken arm. But somehow we think if there's a chemical imbalance that it's okay to just keep going about as if it's all okay. If you're depressed or you're anxious, get help, just like putting a cast on your arm. Because in order for you to be mentally alert for this battle, you need to be fully availing yourself to all the help that you need. For some of us, we might need to seek that help. 
For some of us, it might mean to safeguard quiet time sitting in the presence of God to prioritize prayer and hearing what the Spirit says over us. We must do whatever it takes right now to be alert, to be sober-minded, to be mentally strong. Take a moment to assess in your own life what is it that you might need. Perhaps it's one of these, perhaps it's something else. You see in Revelation 12 verse 11 that Elder Jacob read so well, we overcome by the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony. That means our experience with Jesus, the salvation of God and telling our story. But we cannot tell our story and we cannot experience salvation until we admit fully where we are at right now. It starts with being honest, honest with Jesus and honest with others because God wants to work to make us overcomers as he is. That means telling the truth is the beginning of mental strength. Mental strength to overcome. I wanna say this here because someone might be struggling right here today. If you're having scary thoughts, perhaps you're watching online or you're here in person, but you're thinking about harming yourself. If you're isolated and you feel like no one cares, if you're falling into a dark pit, please get help. Tell us because we love you. We need you. The world needs you. Please tell us. God has big plans for your life. We have an enemy who has come to steal and to kill and to destroy. But in the midst of all of that, in the midst of all that seeks to pull us down, Jesus rises up and says, but I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. So if there are voices telling you those things, you know that is of the enemy and not of God. So to be alert mentally, means to avail yourself of every help possible in Christ and in the community of Christ that God has given us. We all have different things that we face, but let's together not let darkness win. The light of Jesus Christ rising in our hearts over the situations of trauma and abuse and struggle and pain that we go through, the light of Christ can rise. Our struggle looks different, but our Savior is the same call on the name of Jesus. Take time to make sure you have all the help and support with whatever you're facing so that you can be mentally strong. So Peter says, be mentally strong, set your hope. Set your hope. He exhorts us. Arlisha Norwood, she wrote an article for for the National Women's History Museum stating that on August 28, 1963, Dr. Dorothy Height took a seat on the speaker stage on the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. This is Dr. Height right here. It's during that march that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his most famous and well-known speech, I Have a Dream. She was surrounded on that platform with the most amazing and famous civil rights activists. Although she was not scheduled to speak that day, Dr. Height had rightfully gained her place among these prominent leaders. Dr. Height was born in 1912 in Richmond, Virginia. Her family later moved to Pennsylvania and she excelled as a student. So it's no surprise that in 1929, she received a full scholarship to go to college. But that college didn't realize that she was African-American and so she was denied entry. 
She went on to New York University where she received a bachelor's in education and a master's in psychology. Her first job was as a social worker in Harlem, New York. She later joined the staff in Harlem at the Young Women's Christian Association, the YWCA. In no time, she became a leader of the local organization. She was inspired then to join the work of the National Council of Negro Women, the NCNW. Through the NCNW, Height focused on ending lynching in Afri of African Americans and restructuring the criminal justice system. In 1957, she became the fourth president of the NCNW. And under her leadership, they supported voter rights for African Americans in the South, and they financially supported civil rights leaders all across the United States. She was president for 40 years and her impact was immense. Height's prominence in the civil rights movement and unmatched knowledge of organizing meant she was regularly called on to give advice on political issues. Eleanor Roosevelt, Dwight D. Eisenhower, Lyndon B. Johnson, they often called her and sought her counsel. In 1963, when she was organizing the March on Washington for jobs and freedom with others, she was not invited to be up on the platform because no women were present. Height and Anna Arnold Hedgeman persuaded the other organizers to allow a woman to speak and to allow them to sit as they had been key parts of the organizing effort. Despite racial discrimination, despite gender discrimination, Height continued to work on the front lines for her entire life. She gave her life to this cause of equality, and we are better because of it. How was she able to keep going? She set her hope. It's like what Jim Collins shares in his classic book, Good to Great, the Stockdale Paradox. He talks about Vice Admiral James Stockdale, who was a prisoner in Vietnam for seven years. He was part in solitary confinement. Then he was chained in iron chains. He was whipped 15 times a day. He endured tremendous suffering, but he came through because why? He said the ones that didn't survive around him had naive optimism. They kept saying, by Thanksgiving we'll be home, by Christmas we'll be home. But then the weight of despair when it didn't happen the way they thought it would, they just crushed underneath the weight of that. The way that you're able to endure in a cause and keep going is not by naive optimism. It's what Dorothy Height, Dr. Height had. She had resilient hope. She had set her hope. You see, the ones who survive hard times are those like Dorothy Height who experience racial discrimination and gender discrimination and all sorts of other hardships. They're the ones who know they will get out, but they know it will take some time. That it will be different that there will be a better way of life, but it won't be soon. She knew it's going to be a challenge. It's going to take my whole life, but it will be worth it. That's setting your hope. Not, I can make it to Thanksgiving, or Jesus will come before that happens in my life, or if I can just get to, but setting your hope means it may take my whole life, but it will be worth it. Stockdale Paradox, this quote he writes in his book about this very thing, 
the complete and utter confidence mixed with eyes wide open to reality. That's what it is to set your hope. And to quote James Stockdale directly, he says, this is a very important lesson. You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts about your current reality, whatever they might be. So Dr. Height, she looked directly at the deplorable situation and then she still had faith to say, it will happen that this will change. But it will be challenging and it will be costly and it will cost my whole life. And so Peter exhorts them, set your hope. Set your hope. Live in hope of the kingdom of God. That the kingdom of God is coming. That Jesus prevails here in our lives. And that it's going to be tough. It doesn't mean friends who are going through it, friends that are in persecution in these five regions in Asia Minor, it doesn't mean you won't continue to suffer. But it will be worth it. So keep your minds alert, set your hope. And then his third exhortation is be formed in Christ. Be formed in Christ. Verses 15 to 21, he says you're no longer thinking through things the way that you were before. You're not conformed to the ways of the world, but you are being formed in Christ. You're being transformed. You are seeing Jesus who is holy and you are asking him to make you like him. One translation translates this, shape your lives to become like the holy one who has called you. It takes intentionality to be formed like Jesus. It's a choice. You see, it's not suffering that makes us holy. You can go through suffering and end up bitter on the other side. It's not the suffering that makes us holy. It is the yielding to and surrendering to Jesus who walks with us through that suffering. The suffering, my friends, Peter says, that's not gonna be what makes you holy but turn to Jesus and be formed in him. Because remember, he said, your faith that is worth more than gold is being refined through what you're going through, through what you're facing right now. Do you remember Isaiah chapter six? In Isaiah chapter six, Isaiah finds himself confronted with the most holy God and the cherubim who were calling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. And what was Isaiah's response to that? Isaiah cries out, woe is me, for I'm, I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the Lord, the King of glory. But you know what happens when we come into the presence, the awesome and holy presence of the one who is holy and complete and so unlike us. We recognize and we are in awe and we say, I'm not like you, you are holy. Would you make me like you? Would you transform me for me in Jesus? If you pour wet concrete onto the ground, it's just gonna become this solid blob. You can see those that are left sometimes after construction is done, it's just a blob. But if you pour the wet concrete into a mold, you can make things that are beautiful. So you were saying, form me, shape me, mold me, like the song that you played right before in the musical meditation, I am the potter, you are the clay. God, form me in Jesus. And like Isaiah, we can experience 
the cherubim bringing the live coal from the altar. See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. You see, Isaiah was made holy in the presence of the holy God. And so Peter calls on that and he says, become holy as he is holy. Come into the awesome presence of God. Be in awe, be reverent because you realize this one is so unlike you. And then say, form me like you. Form me after your ways. I don't want to be a part of any of the ways of the world anymore. I want to be formed and shaped after you. In 1 Peter 1, 18 to 19, this imagery that Peter uses was especially powerful to those who were slaves who were living in these relocated areas in Asia Minor because they knew that they could buy their freedom and then be sold to someone else still. But he says, you, you, your freedom was purchased not with gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Jesus. You're really, really free. Imagine what that spoke to their identity. Imagine what that spoke to them deeply from that place of saying, you are free and you can never go back because of the blood of Jesus. You are never going back. So Peter exhorts them, be mentally strong. Set your hope. Be formed in Christ. And then the fourth one is love deeply. Love each other. You see, the before and after of the conversion story all hinges on this. You know how they can tell if you're a Jesus follower? Because of how you love. The before and after of our lives is that we love more deeply because Jesus is in us. Peter sounds a little redundant here, doesn't he? It's a little ridiculous. ridiculous. Love each other deeply from the heart. After you've loved each other, now love each other more. Love. The word deeply, though, is signifying a love that requires effort. And it takes work to love. It takes work to love till the end. Peter wants these believers to have their intimacy with Christ and their salvation and the holiness God is working out in them to flow out to intimacy with other believers. Now that you're loving, grow in love. Love the people who hurt you. Love the people who don't do anything for you. Love the people that are hard for you to love. I want you to be driven in how you grow in love. Friends, love all you can. And he cites the reason from Isaiah, because all of us are like grass. The life withers away and perishes. And we don't know what each other are going through, but we can love. You don't know what the people around you right now are journeying through. I would imagine if you could take a moment to be able to see if we were given a different vision that we would be shocked to know the pain and the stories of what people are going through. We don't know, but we can show up in love. And we can love resiliently and deeply. I want to share with you a story of a couple of overcomers in our church, those who show up in love consistently in our community. It got so bad that one morning I had a seizure in my office and uh, luckily my coworker was walking by my office and saw me basically ran to my rescue. I accepted a job in Virginia last year and it was an early Sabbath morning in February. I had gone to the restroom and I was heading back to my bedroom and I remember waking up on the floor, looking up at my 
curtain. I'm wondering why my curtains were upside down. And then I figured I passed out. I'm not sure how long I passed out, but I knew I was in pain. I had rib pain and my head was hurting and I had terrible headaches. So um, I crawled into bed and the next two days I spent in bed and went back to work the following Monday and could not shake my he headaches. My headaches were so severe and the pain in my chest was so severe. When uh, Phil called me and said that he'd fallen in the night and was stuck in bed because he was in such excruciating pain, I was clear across the country. He was in Virginia and I was here in Loma Linda, Redlands, and I, I wasn't sure what to do at that point. And he thought maybe he'd tough it out for a few days, but it became obvious that uh, the pain wasn't going away and he really did need to see a doctor. He flew home and we had no idea really what we were dealing with at that point. They did a CAT scan as soon as I checked in the ER and found that I had a subdural bleed and cracked ribs. We were just so grateful that God had protected him on the flight clear across country, realizing afterwards that he was traveling with a brain injury and broken ribs. They took me immediately into surgery uh, once I had my surgery to stop the bleed, the next morning I saw my neurologist standing next to my bed. He said, Phil, I'm sorry to tell you this, but we got to go back in. And I don't remember the reasons why, but I do remember he said he was worried about me having a stroke and the pressure in my brain. I said, Doc, you got to do what you got to do. I was not looking forward to my second surgery, but my second surgery went well. and. Um, I went home in 10 days and recovered at home. We had no idea everything that uh, was ahead of us at that point. I had to get back to Virginia for my job, so I flew back. Meanwhile, I was developing fluid on the right side of my face. He said, it'll go away, but uh, unfortunately it didn't go away. It kept getting worse. It got so bad that one morning I had a seizure in my office, and uh, luckily my coworker who was walking by my office and saw me basically ran to my rescue. I was at work and I got a call from one of Phil's coworkers saying he'd had a stroke or a seizure, they weren't sure, but he was being helicoptered to Roanoke to the hospital there. I was definitely very scared and um, broke down and cried in my office, being clear across the country not knowing what exactly was going on. I didn't even know at that point actually which hospital he was being taken to. We got to Roanoke. Thankfully, God again sent people in my life. The head neurologist was Dr. Witcher, a Christian man who actually has been to Loma Linda. He's a Sabbath keeper. So we had a long talk about the Sabbath and uh, he did my surgery, but once he went into my brain, it was severely infected. It was so badly infected that they had to take part of my skull out and throw it away. So I was walking around for the next eight weeks with just skin over my, my brain. They made me wear a hat, a special helmet, uh, when I was driving and I would look at the corner of my eye and I would see people just staring at me like as they passed me, by me. But I didn't care, I had to do what I had to do. There was so much out of our control. Uh, with all of Phil's accidents and surgeries. Um, there is nothing that you can do sometimes but pray. 
and yeah. it just forces you um, to really trust God, talk to God, give your troubles over to Him, and we definitely found Him trustworthy over sure. and over and over again. Looking back, we realized uh, how God had taken care of Phil by sending a coworker into his office right at the start of his seizure. They caught it in time for him to be ambulanced and then helicoptered to Roanoke. My whole family believes wholeheartedly that Phil was connected to the neurosurgeon who saved Phil's life in Roanoke, Dr. Witcher. A lot of friends praying for me at Azure Hills Church, at Withwill Seventh-day Adventist Church, and a new church that was my neighbor where I worked. Just amazing outpour of love. I was just so amazed by that. I was yeah. posting updates on Facebook and friends and so many people from Azure Hills Church uh, responded in uh, wonderful ways. Some people were connected at Loma Linda Hospital. People dropped off meals and cakes and prayed and it was such an outpouring and such an encouragement to us during a very dark time in our lives. Yeah. And we will forever be grateful. Friends are God's way of taking care of us and He took care of me. Don't ever give up. God loves us. He never stops loving us. Life isn't about waiting for the storm to pass. It's learning to dance in the rain. So I've been dancing because I know He's got me all the time. Sometimes the results are not what we want it to be. I've always known that God's with me and I never gave up hope. I knew I had a good family and friends, so it helped me keep going. There are just so many things to be grateful for along this journey. We, we are, are the Matthews, Matthews and, and this is our story. story. I am so grateful that Jen and Phil chose to share in the midst of their story because they are overcomers even as they continue to journey through hard stuff. And I'm inspired and moved by how God is at work in them. I am also inspired by you. I love being your pastor because I get to get a front row seat along with our pastoral team to watching the way that you love and you love well. When the accident happens or when things are painful, when the unexpected and unwanted comes in our lives, you show up and you show up in love. When we're dealing with difficult truth that we don't wanna face, when we're sitting down with each other and opening up our hearts and our stories, you show up in love and it's moving to me and it's beautiful. Keep loving. Peter exhorts us, love deeply. And when you've loved, keep loving deeply. Keep loving. Be driven to learn even more about love, the more you love. And he says, why? It's like this is the culminating point of all of his exhortations. He says, be mentally strong. Set your hope. Be formed in Christ so that you can love deeply. Because love is all that lasts. The grass withers and the plants, the flowers fall. But what endures forever, this word of the Lord, this love of the Lord, 
through you, through the body of Christ, by the power of God in us. So keep on loving. Keep on loving.